Episode 9 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now. Hello, aviators, and welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. It is just so awesome, the community that we are creating here at Pilot to Pilot. I can't wait to see where this goes and who we can interview next. Today, we are talking with Justin from Carlsbad Pilot. In this episode, we find out why he chose the pilot life, how he was able to solo before he could drive a car, how a Craigslist ad helped him build his time, what the interview process was for Virgin America, and a step-by-step process of the regional training. There's so much in this episode, it is gonna be a great one. It is for aviators of all types, whether you're new to aviation, whether you just love aviation, or whether you are a seasoned pilot with 10,000 hours, you will truly enjoy this episode. And if you do happen to enjoy this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes, or you can head to our Instagram page, at pilot to pilot where you can DM us, leave us a comment, do whatever, share it, let everyone know what we're doing here. We wanna create the best content for you. And don't forget about our Wing Boss giveaway. We're giving away a hat. All you have to do is follow our page and leave a review on iTunes, and we're gonna pick someone to win an awesome Wing Boss hat. If you haven't seen it yet, look at the hat in my feed. I wear it all the time. I love wearing that hat. And also make sure you stay tuned to the very end of this episode where I'm gonna be posting some hilarious outtakes from my wife and I when we recorded this episode. It is pretty funny and you don't want to miss that. And without further ado, Carl's Bad Pilot. Hey Justin, thanks for joining the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. First off, I want to say congratulations on being checked out with your airline. That is awesome and such a big deal. I know that you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that, so congratulations. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, man. So cool. So let's go ahead and just get started. Uh, first question I have for you will be, why did you get in aviation? Like, was it when you were younger? Was it when you were older? Or what, when did you know you caught the bug? Yeah, so I grew up uh, in a smaller town in Central Valley next to Castle Air Force Base. And that was back when they had the B-52s, KC-135s and all that stuff. And my dad used to take me out there because he used to get right up next to the fence. And uh, I mean, kind of like how San Martin is today, they'd let you on base and you can basically get right next to them. So <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of where I caught the bug, you know, and then I had that for God, since I was six years old, all the way up till I could actually get uh, get into a position where I could start flying. So when did you take your first flight? So my first flight uh, was when I was 12 years old. I flew probably, probably about once a month for a solid two years. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then I remember when it came to when I turned 16, I was able to solo before you know, I was able to drive a car. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> that is awesome. I wish I would have been able to do that. And that was right about the point where I was in high school and I needed to get a job to uh, to support that. So after that, I, it, it kind of slowed down. I didn't actually get my license till I was 23. Okay. So my uh, my parents, they were full blown on uh, making sure I went to college and all that stuff. So typical parent stuff, right? Yeah, totally. It was really hard to keep flying at that time. Yeah. When I did my training in college, it was really hard to balance everything between sports, school, and actual flying. From the moment I started flying in 2010, I didn't get my actual private pilot license until the beginning of 2013. So it took me about two and a half to three years to actually get my private. So I'm kind of in the same boat as you were in that aspect. Yeah. And especially, you know, when you're young like that, you don't really know if you don't have any mentors or anything like that, you're kind of out in the in the blue of how to actually go about and be a pilot. Kind of don't understand how important it is to get everything done as fast as possible to set you up for your career. Like it's the sooner you get your ratings, the sooner you can go make money, the sooner you can be a flight instructor, the sooner you can build your your career and kind of take that step forward. Yeah, exactly. You know, if I if I had to do it again, I would probably just I would obviously take out a loan and just do it that way and worry about paying it back later. But at the time, I just I was kind of caught off guard. I, I knew I wanted to do it, but I, I wasn't sure the, the route to get there. 
Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of a, a common theme with some students. Like now looking back on it, you're probably like, dang, man, like it was really easy for me. Like I should have just done this, this and this. But when you're in the moment and you there's so much uncertainty around you and I'm, I'm probably at the time you were doing aviation wasn't as good as a prospect as it is now for younger aviators. Like the pay probably wasn't very good and no one was hiring. So it probably kind of held you back too. But now if I could go back, like you're saying, I, I would know I'd just go after it 100% and try to get everything as fast as possible. Exactly. You know, I, I've thought about actually making like a PDF or a book or something like that on, you know, my route and the routes that I would suggest. But uh, I know a couple other people out there do it on Instagram. Yep, for sure. And no, I, th- I think that th- that'd be beneficial because one of the reasons why I started the podcast is everyone has a different story and it's crazy the routes that people take. Some people do it very traditional. They become CFI, they go to a regional, then they sit at a regional for a while and go to a major. But that's like, I mean, that happens every once in a while, but a lot of people have some cool stories and they've done stuff some creative ways. So there's definitely different ways to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mine's definitely not traditional. Which is good. It makes life more exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I have some gnarly uh, experiences that I wouldn't have got otherwise. Oh, for sure. I can completely <laughs> agree with you there. But another thing, too, is like I like I com- have complete respect for flight instructors and their job is great. And you get a lot of experience and you learn a lot. But when I went to aerial survey, I felt like that set me up for my career more than what flight instructing could do because I was immediately thrown into the industry and I was just a little small town or a small hour pilot that was flying three tens across the whole country. I had to figure out how to get rented cars. I had to figure out how to talk to the FBOs, get fuel, the whole lingo. And you kind of set yourself up for your career after that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, when I started doing the training at, uh, at surf air and I got onto the hiring board, it was, it was nice to see people have different stories because it's, it sets you apart from everybody else. You got your PPL when you're about 23, right? Yep, about 23. I started at two years of community college. Then I ended up doing the other two years at a, uh, a university down here in San Diego. During the time, I was I was still interested in how to fly, but I was wondering how to do it. And you know, I didn't have basically the funds available like you know some some people have, which is is nice. I you know don't frown on that at all. But uh, I started working at Wells Fargo, and I worked there for six years, and they ended up paying for my college, so I didn't have any nice. debt at a college. That's awesome. Yeah. So when I got out of college, uh, my first thing was to you know to finish up my ratings. And one of my buddies from Merced, which is where I was from up by Castle, he came down here and he was a flight instructor. So instead of going to a flight school, I did everything part 61. You know, we would just hang out here at my house and uh, we'd have a couple beers and we'd talk about, you know, the handbook and all that stuff. You know, I, I give him props for even sitting back and uh, dealing with a, a, you know, fresh private pilot. That's the way to do it, though. You can find like a good friend or anyone just to come help you out. I mean, obviously, you compensate them for their time, but just if they can yeah. help you out anywhere in any way they can. And one of the cool things about aviation, which I've found true every single place I've been, is that everyone wants to help you out. Like everyone's willing to help you out. Like no one's going to completely ignore you. They want to see you grow and they want to see you come into this career. Oh, totally. I mean, after uh, after my two years of community college down here, just to save money, and I, I had a government government uh, fee waiver to do that, so that didn't really cost me any money. And then uh, I went out to the University of Jacksonville, Florida, and I was going to get on with the Delta Flight Academy, Delta Connection Flight Academy. Yeah. Back when that shows you how old I am. Uh, back when that was a thing, but uh, you know, touring the campus and everything, it was great. The only problem was they had a hundred ninety-six thousand dollar bill associated with that. Oh my gosh, that makes me cringe just hearing that. You know, I was talking it over with my buddy, and I was like, dude, you know, if I could do it for a fraction of that, you know, is it possible? So that's when uh, that's when I decided not to go there and go to a you know a college out here, and uh, 
during that time, so let me backtrack. After the day after I did my private pilot check ride, I was looking on Craigslist. Just I don't know how I came across it, but I saw a position for a fish spotter support pilot. What? San Diego. Are you serious? Yeah. So, so I immediately called this guy, which he now he's my mentor. He's a a seven six guy at Delta. That's hilarious. Yeah. So he, uh, you know, he ended up. I talked with him, and he's like, "Yeah, have you ever flown a tailwheel?" And you know, I obviously hadn't at that point. I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you know, totally." <laughs> that day, I went out and got my tailwheel rating, and the next day, I went on my first flight. But just getting hours in the airplane, you know, it, it was cool because I ended up buying that airplane from him no way that's awesome 1500 hours just about a year and a half i was flying 10 to 11 hours a day five days a week yeah it's it's no joke trying to get your hours man yeah i mean we were 500 feet off the uh off the water and up to 200 miles out looking for swordfish and tuna 200 miles out yeah yeah you know now that i look back on it i was like wow that's that was pretty dumb but (laughs) what kind of airplane was it it was a citabria 70 ca 100 horsepower oh yeah power man yeah if you check out on my my instagram you know carl's bed pilot down toward the beginning i, I basically have the whole storyline on there but yeah that was that was one of my more fun you know not really jobs but flying experience building hours you know buying the airplane i bought it for ten thousand dollars what that's awesome yeah and then me and my buddies would go fly that thing around it only burned four to five gallons an hour so it was literally 20 to 30 bucks an hour to fly that thing around that's incredible when i remember when i first got my commercial rating this random guy at the airport was just like this is what you need to do you need to find a cheap 150 or a cheap plane buy it and just fly the crap out of it and i was like okay dude like i'm not flying a 150 but looking back on it and hearing you tell that story it's like that is super cheap and a great way to build your time was i literally count getting to the airlines that airplane. I mean, I have more hours in that airplane than literally most jets I have now. That's awesome. Yeah. And that was, it was good stick and rudder. We were flying basically. I had a, I had my iPad up with four flight and then I had another iPad up with the fish maps and we would go out and uh, follow swordfish boats out in front of them and zigzag and catch fish and drop die and they'd come in and harpoon the fish and well, it just goes to show like how many different ways there are out there to build your hours. Like You can do, you can literally do anything. Like I never even heard of something like that before. So if you're living by the coast or you have a love for flying over the ocean, 200 miles out in a a Satabria, there is a way for you to do that. You know, when I got my commercial license, I think I had 500, 600 hours. It was more of me trying to find time because I was, I knew I had to get to 1500 hours. I knew that was like my main goal. I started thinking I got to get some multi-engine time in here and whatnot. And uh, I went out, got my instrument here in Carlsbad as well. That was you know, that I, w- I would say that's probably at the time that was one of the comparative now to like the ATP, you know, like more worried about that check ride, you know, than anything. And then once I got done with that, I was more like, OK, now we got to get ready for the ATP. Yeah. Instrument check rides, no joke, because I mean, I was talking about this on other podcasts. It's just like you either can fly in instrument conditions or you can't like you can't fake it. You know, like you have to have the skill to do it and you have to be at standard to do it, not only to be safe for yourself, but to be safe for everyone around you. You know, it's funny looking back now because now I'm in the Airbus A320 and 321 Neos and that. And, you know, going back, I don't even know if I could set up an NDB approach again. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. Those skills are good to have because, you know, in your ATP check ride, they will fail everything and you will have to shoot a hand-flown localizer approach. Same type of thing, but of course it's easier in these planes. You know, it's definitely a lot harder to do it in a smaller airplane like that where you're hand-flying and uh, trying to do all that stuff. At my job right now, I fly Pilatuses and Caravans and going from the Pilatus to the Caravan, like it, I mean, the Pilatus is obviously a little bit bigger, it's faster, can do a little more, but the controls are so much heavier than what the Caravan is. 
So when I go back to the caravan, it's so weird for me to fly an approach because the slightest movements and the slightest adjustments can throw me five degrees off course. And I have to be really on top of myself to stay on course and to fly a good approach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, down the line, we'll talk about the next job. But I mean, between that PC-12, what is it, the 45 compared to the NG, you know, it handles a lot better. But of course, you have all that glass and whatnot. For sure. No, um, <laughs> we are flying. I don't know if you've heard if you've heard this or if I told you this before, but we fly the third, the sixth and the tenth PC-12 ever made. Okay. So, yeah. So, they're the old ones for sure. Yep, they are the old ones. Like, Pilatus is calling. It's like, how do you still have these planes flying? What are you guys doing? I've actually had the hydraulic gear not come down and had to manually crank one. Oh, no way. That's actually, I would love to talk to you about that because <laughs> that would suck. It was pretty bad. Yeah. Well, cool. So, let's uh, go back. So, how was your instrument training? Was it pretty pretty easy, would you say? Was it as hard as people made it out to be? Or did you, did you think it was fun? The book work is probably the hardest. Right. On the instrument check, right? Because, you know, it's it's kind of like ri- driving a car. Once you get it, you know, it's the flying part comes. Right. The hardest things for me, you know, were just remembering like the service volumes on a VOR. And at the time, I remember, you know, radials and courses were were tough for me at the time. And, you know, once I once I got a, you know, I would go through on YouTube and watch people set them up. And, you know, to be honest, I, I had a Flight Simulator X back in the day. I would literally fly my you know, my check ride over and over and over until I literally had the whole thing memorized. And then I would throw things in there and my buddies would come over and we'd, we'd mess with each other and, you know, and just figure things out that way. And that made it a lot easier having hands on as opposed to just reading it in the book. Oh, for sure. People, it's hard because their only hands on is in the airplane. Right. You know, so what I, what I ended up doing is my training, instead of using a 172, I used a 152 that was, you know, instrument qualified. So that was only, think $70 at the time an hour. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was that was a lot easier. And my my instructor at the time, he's one of my best friends from home. And you know, now he's in a G650. It, it was pretty cool. He had a more, you know, it's one of those things where I had a, the experience of flying with a flight instructor, then I had an experience of flying with a guy who, who know, you know, has been there, done it, and now is in jets and understands what I really need to know, what to concentrate on, give me a better perspective on what's applicable and what's not. You know what I mean? Right, for sure. And I think going back to what you said about how like in your instrument training, it's important, like it's very hard to get that initial understanding of how everything works. But once you can get that kind of initial understanding, and it might take you a week, two weeks, maybe a couple of days, depending on the student. But once you get that initial understanding, everything's going to kind of fit in and fill in and you're going to feel more comfortable. And it's more about practice. Like, I know I did my training, private pilot training in Ohio, and I did everything else in North Carolina. And just having the ability in North Carolina to fly in the wintertime in clouds, like I could fly every single day because I wasn't worried about icing like I was in Ohio. So flying a place that has the weather, it's conducive to help you have a fast track training and do that. It just helps a lot because practice makes perfect for sure in an airplane. Oh, exactly. And you know, it's getting through at that point, you know, I you know, when you first start your pilot training, you're not really sure how an oral is. The oral sounds terrifying, you know, at the time. And you're worried about flying the airplane. And then you're worried about approach minimums for the first time. You're looking at lighting systems and weather requirements and all those things that now it's, you know, secondhand. But at the time, it's, you know, it's a pretty big task. It's definitely daunting to think about it. Like when you're just a private pilot and this whole, like you just learn pretty much a new skill and now you have to learn another new skill on top of that so it's definitely difficult but i would recommend it doesn't matter if you just fly for fun having an instrument rating is definitely key to being a safe pilot because you never know what could happen what kind of situation you can find yourself in i've had i actually have a kind of a scare it's not for me i was flying the pc12 on a trip and i heard this guy he was in 
an RV and he was, he just called into approach and he was kind of freaking out and he was asking to climb above 18,000 feet. And the guy, the controller is like, yeah, you can do that. Are you IFR capable? And he goes, no. And then the guy's like, well, you can't go above 18,000 feet. And then the guy comes back and he goes, well, we're going to have a problem then. There were clouds from 17,000 feet all the way down to 3,000 feet where this guy, he didn't know what he was going to do to get down. You know, if, even if you don't have your IFR rating yet, it's good to start looking into that stuff because it's, it's easy to get into trouble. Um, like, especially here on the coast where I'm at, the fog just rolls in. You could take off and, you know, 30 minutes later, the, the marine layer just cruises in and it could catch. For sure. And there's nothing worse than I will shoot any approach down to minimums, but I do not like fog approaches, low fog, low visibility. When you know you start the approach and you get, you're get you pretty much like 100 feet above minimums, you haven't gotten in the clouds yet, you know it's going to be an interesting approach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny back then because I was like, man, these minimums come quick. Yeah. Now we're doing 140 and it's just like, okay, yeah, approach line. Yeah, we're good feeling tight. Okay, let's land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, that just comes with being more comfortable too and doing more approaches. And even if you're flying a smaller plane, like you're going to get comfortable like that and you'll be able to do approaches. If you do them quite often, that's really, I mean, yeah. I think they're fun. I enjoy flying approaches. Absolutely. And you're out, where you, you're out in Ohio? Yeah, we're based out of Northeast Ohio, but we fly pretty much all over the country. We go to, we pretty much don't go too far west of Texas, but we do a lot of Texas, Mexico, and Canada stuff, and then all over the East Coast. Nice, yeah. The the East Coast flying in the winter, that'll that'll get you prepared for anywhere. Oh yeah, especially when you go to JFK in the winter time in the East Coast. That's always fun. Oh yeah, yeah. And a plot. Actually, yeah, I did an applaudus, but sometimes we send caravans in there, and that's never fun. They just start yelling at you. Fast speed available. It's like I am. I'm trying. Yeah, totally. I'm trying to think where I was at. Um, we passed the instrument check ride, and then immediately. I was saying, you know, I got to get my multi, multi commercial. And I went to a place that was, I think it at the time it was $4,000 for a three day course. And you got your commercial multi engine and multi engine commercial instrument. I mean, it was, it was intense because you, they sent you a study guide and it was the first time where I had to memorize something. You show up, have about four hours of ground school, do about four hours of flight training in the multi, and then go and take your multi engine rating the same day you show up. Oh my gosh, that's intense. So that that was intense. And then the next day you just go up in a 172 and get your, or 172 RG and get your, uh, your single engine add on. So that was, that was pretty quick. But you know, after that, I didn't really use, it's hard. It's really hard finding time in a twin without paying for it. Oh, for sure. And that's, that's the hardest thing. You know, I think I went, you know, flying with friends, we'd get four people go to lunch and I probably did that for about 20, 30 hours. And then, um, there was a guy on one of those job websites who he was offering, Hey, I'll pay you. God, I think it was like $200 a day to sit right seat in a, a 421 and a 310. Oh, nice. And, uh, but that was up in Burbank, you know? So I was driving every day up to Burbank just to get multi-engine time. Cause I think the airlines required 50 at that time. And I was only halfway there. No, it's crazy. The things we do for uh, that multi-time. <laughs> yeah, you know, Now I'd be like, yeah, right. I'm not doing that. That, that airplane was fun. That was the first time I got into a fast airplane. Yeah, me too. I have probably 450 hours in a 310. So yeah, the cool airplanes. I love flying. I flew a 310 all over the country. I got, I took a 310. Well, I had to for my job. It wasn't for fun. I took a 310 up to 21,000 feet for five hours to do aerial survey over the Colorado mountains. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, so that was fun, but it was definitely interesting. And it was funny. The guy I was flying with, I was actually teaching him how to fly the plane, and I was we're going. It was time to switch the fuel tanks over. 
and he didn't put the fuel tank right where it needed to be to settle to switch over to the auxiliary tanks. And our left engine started shutting off and immediately he looked at me. I was like, dude, get the fuel, get the fuel. And we did the fuel and it came back right away. But it was really funny yeah, and kind of scary. Well, it's funny because now that I'm in a, a turbine airplane, you know, I look back and when I, I still own this Atabri up until last year, I ended up selling it. But uh, getting back in that airplane after flying jets and stuff, I was like, you know, does this sound right? Is Is everything right here? You know, way more cautious than I was, you know, back in the day. Even going from the caravan, or when I go from the Plotus to the caravan again, and the Plotus, you don't have to do anything for the fuel. The plane smart does it all its own. But in the caravan, you have to balance the fuel yourself by moving the rudder around to make sure the tanks stay even. So every once in a while, I'm like, oh crap, I got to check my tanks and keep doing that. So it's definitely interesting, like going in between different aircrafts and how you need to be proficient in both of them to keep flying them. Exactly. So cool. So yeah, you did your instrument. What did you think about your commercial training? I thought personally that commercial is the most fun training for me. I actually enjoyed pretty much all of the maneuvers except for the eights on pylons. I hated those. I thought those are so dumb, but everything else is a lot of fun for me. Yeah, it definitely is the more laid back fun. I know there's standards in there, but I think they're more lax. They just want to see you comfortable in the airplane and doing the maneuvers when they ask you because, you know, up to that point, you're not really doing chandelles and lazy eights and all that turns around a point, which can definitely be because you're so low to the ground and you got wind and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah. And then you get to do, you know, for me, I did at the same time. So we were doing single engine ILS approaches, which I found, you know, really fun. Yeah, they can be fun. It can be a good workout too for your legs. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. A lot of respect for people who fly, you know, propeller airplanes and lose one on the critical side. Yeah, it, can, it is not fun to train for that because you, you don't have to go do leg day for a while. That's the only good point about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Commercial is fun for me. Um, commercial is probably, I would say commercial is probably the easiest check ride I took because I had a lot of time in the plane that I was flying. Like I felt most comfortable in it. I kind of had two check rides under my belt and I already knew kind of what they would ask and how they would phrase questions to try to like trick you. Did you feel the same way? Exactly. You know, they, they give you those scenario questions, you know, where, Hey, this guy's coming here and he's going to bring his friend and his friend wants to pay you, you know, this X amount. And kind of one of those, you know, where I, I know the answer, but I feel like he's tricking me at the same time. Yeah. Those whole common carriage questions, they can be kind of tricky. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much gray area with all that stuff. There's a lot of gray area and a lot of the regulations, unfortunately, but you just got to do your best to interpret them and just treat everything like it's your certificate on the line. Don't do anything that you wouldn't want to do that would make you lose your certificate. Exactly. You know, and then that's your, that's kind of your highlight at that point. You're like, okay, now I can totally reverse this and start making some money at that point oh exactly yeah it's not worth like the 20 or 100 dollars you're going to make to lose your certificate when you have 300 hours is not worth what you could make when you're 45 and flying for the airlines you know yeah you know i see a lot of uh you know i'm on on facebook and stuff with these groups you know like pilot mentorship and um, a couple of the other ones and i see a lot of guys on there hey i just passed my commercial does anybody know of any jobs you know and to be honest it's really hard to get a job under 800 hours Oh yeah. It's very hard. It's, you don't have the experience yet and not, not getting into weather and then taking a plane on your own. So I mean, you're PIC at that point. Oh yeah. No, you're PIC and everything comes down to you and no one wants to hire a 300 hour PIC because very rarely will you find any insurance that will help you out. Yeah, exactly. And you know, after I started flying the 421, I had about a hundred hours in that and I was just hanging out at the airport and a guy pulled up in a Citation 500, you know, the old slotations and, Hey, I need somebody to ride right seat. You want to go? And I was like, of course, you know, so I there and he let me fly it and all this stuff. And I did about five trips with him just for fun, just cause I, you know, loved aviation. And it was fun to go do it. 
Um, I, I wasn't really too sure at that point how to get a job in a jet per se. Now, you know, I'm trying to think of, all right, well now I need a type rating and all this stuff. And, you know, eventually he just said, Hey, my company, they were, they want an SIC now. He had a good time and he feels more comfortable with a pilot in the right seat. You know, um, once you get to 500 hours, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and we'll type you in this thing, give you an SIC type when they were still doing SIC types. Lucky for me, I think I had like 490 at the time. So within a week I was, I was good to go. And we started doing that and got my SIC in the 500 series. That's really cool. I mean, that just goes to show like right place, right time and people, you know, and being involved and going to the airport and kind of hanging out with people and kind of like putting your name out there and treating yourself like a business and your own CEO and trying to improve your career as much as possible. So that's awesome. You did that. Yeah. And that's, that goes a long way to your personality and the way you, you act, you know, at the beginning stages, stages, you know, it's such a small community. Like, you know, you've done podcasts with people that I talk to all the time or hang out or work with and yeah, and you guys live halfway across the country from each other, so it's it is crazy how small the community is. It, it's really weird. I've been in the in the airport terminal, and, and you know, I've heard someone yell, "Hey, Carl's bad pilot," and I'm just like, "What is going?" <laughs> you know, they literally <laughs> that's awesome, but they know the Instagram. That really threw me for a loop. I was like, "Wow, this, people are actually looking at this." Yeah, you're like, "Who? <laughs> Who's that?" You know, and then I got to explain to my captain at the time. I was like, "Oh man, you know, just disregard." Don't worry about that. You did not see that. It's all good. <laughs> that did not happen. That's really funny. So what? It, what? So that was your first job, technically. Yeah, I was in the citation, and I, you know, I can't even remember what I was getting paid. Not, not much. Um, right. That's what got me to my multi-engine hours, and then at that time, I had a type rating, and that's when I got up to fifteen hundred hours and started mass applying. You know, going on airline apps and just throwing it out there. During that time, I I actually went to school to get my CFI up at American oh, cool. Airs at Santa Monica. And I went through I went through that whole course, but you know, it just I like to teach, don't get me wrong, but I don't really as bad as it sounds, I was kind of over it. I think a lot of people are kind of over it at that point. And that doesn't mean you'd be a bad instructor or you don't love aviation. Like it's okay if you feel like you're over it. Like you, you had so many hours, your time was kind of up to go to the airline. So I don't think that's any problem at all. Purely doing it as a resume booster. And then at the same time, I, I wanted to make side money teaching in my Cetabria, you know, just doing checkouts and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, this will be cool. And, you know, I went through that and that was by far one of the hardest training because you have the instructors in there for two hours and he says, all right, make a lesson plan. You know, and I remember going in there and thinking, wow, this is going to be a piece of cake. And I got up in front of the class and he's like, tell me how a propeller works. And I was just like, I don't know. And I'm sitting there going, well, God, how do I explain this? How do I dumb this down? And I'm like, well, okay, think of like a screw. You know, if you, if you start screwing it in, it's going to pull the screw down or pull it out. And he's like, okay, that makes more sense. And then I'm just sitting there going, wow, I really have to think of alternate ways of teaching people how this thing, how a wing works. Like obviously everybody knows how a wing works. That is a private pilot by that point. But it's really hard teaching somebody who has no hours and it's looking up to you. And you know, when you can't give them a good answer on how a propeller works, you know, you might lose their trust a little bit. Or if someone teaches you something wrong, it's to take them a lot longer to learn the right way. So it's very important how you present information to them. So I remember it was, it was two days before my, my CFI check, or I think they did the double I first. It was before my double I check ride. I got a call from, you know, a regional airline said, Hey, you got a class next week. And I thought about it and I go, well, do I really need the CFI? And I just, you know, I, I bounced out. I, I took the airline job and you know, I was like, eh, I, I was considering, do I want, because you know, the, the CFI is one of those, no matter how good you are, the, the fail rate on that is probably 80%. I think first try it's some really high up there and it's mostly on the oral and you know I just wasn't a hundred percent comfortable like I'm gonna I, I like being completely prepared when I walk into one 
at that point, I'm sitting there, I go, well, you know, the airline already, you know, sent me an offer letter. So I guess I don't really need it, you know, at that point. So I, I decided to go to the regional. That was probably a good move because CFI is no joke at all. The I've heard horror stories of eight to 10 hour grounds and then flights where they do everything possible. So I don't blame you for that at all. Completely recommend, you know, I, I kind of got lucky with finding that first job, but you know, I definitely recommend doing it and going through because you will learn a lot. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun teaching at my, you know, in later jobs down the road. Yeah. And one thing too, that I kind of, I didn't get my CFI either. And sometimes I look back on it wishing that I did. So in the future, I'd have the ability to take my kid up and kind of teach him how to fly. Or if my wife ever wanted to fly, I could teach him how to fly or kind of, kind of give back and teach people how to fly. So maybe in the future, I'll go get it. Same here, you know, because now I have, you know, 15 to 17 days off a month. So there's a lot more time to go do that. My flying skills are where they need to be. And, you know, the learning, you can always read a book, you know, we're on, I'm doing transcons now. So you can always just sit up there for six hours. And, you know, instead of reading a book, go through, you know, your FOI and all that stuff makes a lot more sense now than it did with a couple hundred hours. For sure. And there's so many people that help me out by offering either free flights to teach me stuff like CFIs were, were kind of my mentors to help me out. Always great for yourself to give back to because I mean, I'm sure every single pilot has had someone go above and beyond for them. So it's important to make sure that you continue that trend. Oh, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I like doing things like this. And uh, we I, I did pilots and paws back for a while. You know, I love dogs. and whatnot. Nice. That's I, awesome. I those in the Pilatus. And no way. Oh, that'd be so cool. Yeah, so that was fun, you know. So talk to me a little bit about the regional life. When was the regional? Was it when the regionals were the truly like terrible regionals or was it more recent when the regionals are kind of getting a little better? This was back when they were like, you're lucky to be here kind of thing, you know, and yeah, <laughs> which I was, don't get me wrong. I was, I was really stoked. I was going through CRJ 700 class. Nice. You got to bypass the 200. That's nice. Yeah. And going through, it, it was completely different training than I was used to. I mean, they show up and, you know, you have a test on the first day and they don't teach you anything. It's just memorize this packet and come first day and you have a test. That's really daunting. You know, it's all right. Uh, systems. I've never flown a jet before or well, I have flown a jet, you know, but I haven't flown a jet, an airliner, you know, and everything's different. Right. You know, you got pneumatic packs now and you got hydraulic systems and, you know, but now it makes sense to me where, all right, you know, you need to know your, your limitations, your memory items. That's just obvious things you have to memorize day one. So that was daunting, you know, getting through that. And then you sit through two weeks of indoc where it's just videos and, you know, boring stuff and lose what you memorize. So, you know, when you're going through, always stay up on those because on every airline check ride, you're the first thing in the oral is going to be every limitation and every memory item, no matter where you go, you know, so it's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things, you know, when, when I was teaching at my next job that I'll talk about, you know, it it was one of those things when guys would show up and they didn't know it. It's like, all right, dude, like, you know it at this point, you know, you got, you got to know this stuff. And I see why, because then when you get into simulator training, they give you emergency descent or uh, unable to maintain altitude and you have to apply those. And if you just wrote, memorized them, you know, it makes a lot more sense going through sitting at a cockpit trainer and, and touching the buttons and seeing why you're doing it. Once you do it once and it makes sense why it's there, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So when I started class, we went out to flight safety in St. Louis and, you know, the the first two weeks were in dock and the second four or let's see the, the next two weeks after that was just complete systems. And it was a fire hose, you know, I mean, it's, they tell you it once and then you got to go home and study it and then go over your memory items limitations. The next day, something else, study it and then go back on the rest. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot of info. And at the time, you know, I wasn't an ATP and I wasn't going through one of those courses where it's trained to proficiency. It was a straight type rating. So not only was it an ATP check, ride, It was my first actual PIC type rating as well. God forbid you fail, you know, you got, I don't know, what is it, two hits or three hits, four hits at at once because your ATP 
then you got your oral and all that. So it, it's a lot on your plate. You're stressed out, but then you get into the simulator and it's like, wow, you know, you get to see the airplane and do a walk around. And you're like, wow, this is really cool. I'm stoked to be here. And that gives you the motivation to keep going. Yeah, no, airline is definitely different than flying like a Pilatus or even like you said, the citation or the slotation as some people say, just like hydraulic systems for hydraulic systems. And there's just systems everywhere that you could never even imagine. Absolutely. You know, and then, so I went through, went through that, had no problems, got through the oral and that was, I think my oral was like three hours and it's just, oh wow, every oral at the airline is pretty similar that memory items, limitations, and then you'll sit in front of a cockpit and they'll just go start going down. What's this button do? What's this light mean? And that kind of gets you through your oral and then they'll ask you about memory items and limitations along the way. Just see your basic understanding of the airplane. Then you'll start sim training, which is what I did. And I think there was eight sims at the time. And you'll, they'll set you up with a classmate that you'll do. And I, I was kind of tripping out because my classmate, he, uh, he was terrible. <laughs> he ended up failing out uh, in like Simpson. It was really bad. But in at the same time, it made me have to learn how to fly both seats from the right. And then at the same time, I got uh, I kind of got lucky and had a, you know, a Czech airman in the left seat as my captain, as opposed to oh, nice. someone who was going to, you know, because if you're flying, you gotta, you gotta have the guy set up the box, right? You gotta actually count on your FO when you're actually flying or the captain. And you could say you're you're flying from the left seat and your buddy's taking the check ride on the right, you can still fail your check ride from the left seat just on your pilot monitoring stuff. So it, you're kind of almost doing two check rides for one. Man, that's crazy. And you just have the stress or you have this, you haven't done your actual check ride. I can only imagine what the stress is just being the monitoring one. Or you think you passed already and then you're just like sitting back and you miss one thing and they're like, what are you doing? You just killed a yeah. hundred people. I exactly. Exactly. Or blow through a localizer or something easy. Yeah. Yeah, it's always those little easy things that you miss that you just the small details that you can overlook that would come back to get you. Yeah, you know, once I got through there and got to IOE and got on the line, you know, I mean, flying for the airlines was just it was I mean, it's when I first got there it was awesome. You know, I loved it. I loved traveling. And you know, I wasn't getting paid much. I think I was I made God, I made like 18,000 a year. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Living in the slums. But you know, I was I spent Christmas in New York and all these different things I never would have got to do. And you know, you get close to your crewmates and whatnot. So you know, it was a good time. And then at that time, other regionals were starting to paying more. And I, I was still sitting there going, all right, well, I had at this time about 1000 to 1500 hours in the airplane. And I'm looking at some of the captains, and they're still not getting hired. And I'm trying to figure out what's my next play? Do I stay here and wait for, you know, United Delta to call? Or do I, you know, go off the beaten path? And you know, some of my mentors, they went through corporate and then got to a major or you know, they they did other things or got into the training department, you know, and at that airline, I couldn't get to the training department without being a captain. So, you know, it got to- Oh, no way. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the one I was at, it might be different in other places. I mean, that makes sense though. You think you'd want your most experienced pilots to be the ones teaching people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's pretty wild. You know, and then um, at that time, I, I kind of started getting into a slum where I'm like, man, I can't, I can't make this amount of money forever. And, you know, get I, scheduling was just treating you like crap. And, you know, working for the regional is just so different from a major. They, you know, they're, you're just a number there. We can find someone else to do this as soon as you're done. So they're going to burn you out. And at the time, you know, I was homesick and I was living on the East Coast and I'm from San Diego. So definitely probably not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, you know, and I had a buddy who was working at Surf Air and now he now he works for Virgin 2. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's kind of cool having a buddy there that we we've, we've literally done all the same things together, but uh, you know, I'm making 75 grand a year and I'm working 8 days a month. So I was like, wow, that's I want to do that, you know, and I'm home every night. So those things that you didn't think you cared about like being home every night started coming into play. So, you know, I it was hard to make the jump back to, you know, what some people say is a going backwards, you know, to a, a propeller airplane again. You know, it was it 
it was turbine PIC and I hired in as a captain. About six months after that, I asked to be in the training department. I ended up going through and being one of their, their head training guys. So that I think really helped the resume as far as comparing it to, you know, either staying or going, you know, so I got, Oh, for sure. Yeah. I got checked out at flight safety and, uh, and CAE and semi flight in their Pilatus program. And it, it was cool. I love doing IOEs and that's where my flight instructor thing kicked back in. Cause I was like, all right, it's, I have a lot more fun teaching people that already know how to fly right. a, a higher performance aircraft. You know, I get a lot of satisfaction out of doing that and teaching simulator guys. Like one of my best friends, pilot drew on Instagram, uh, Andrew, he was one of, he was my first student and now we're best friends. You know, oh, cool. That's awesome. Things, and I got him his job after that at my next job in the Jets. So it, it's cool and seeing him progress, you know, and you know, knowing you had a part of that is is a real cool feeling. No, that's awesome. And you have a unique story where you recognize like kind of the writing on the wall and what the industry was at that time, and you saw that it wasn't looking too good for your situation. Like you said, captains weren't even being picked up by the majors, so why would they hire you? So you kind of looked at it, assessed the situation, and saw kind of another option. And that option to some may seem weird, but it turned out to probably be the best option you could have taken at the time. Exactly. You know, I spent just about a year and a half at Surf Air. And, uh, you know, that was, I mean, probably to this day, one of the best jobs I've ever had because, I mean, I was home every night and I had 22 days off a month and I could still jump seat on Virgin Airlines. We had a contract with them. So I was like, oh, this is great. I went to Hawaii every month and visited my friends and oh my gosh you make me jealous oh it was great you know all, all good things must come to an end and at that yep. time they they sold to a european company and instead of doing sim training i was back on the line they started dropping the whole management changed and i was back to work in 25 days a month oh man then they ended up closing carlsbad which is i was living a half mile from the airport so oh that's awesome you know at that time then i I ended up meeting another guy and uh, he's like, hey, well, why don't you just come fly Citation? CJ3 is over here. We'll give you, you know, 80 grand to do that. What do I sign? Exactly. So within a month, I was, you know, I went and got my PIC single type or single pilot type rating on the CJ3 and was flying to Canada and Mexico internationally by myself and with a crew and going back from the airlines, you know, like when you show up at an airline, you do your walk around, they hand you the paperwork, you type it in the box, then you relax where this was my first job where I'm like, okay, now I have to literally plan everything, you know? Yeah. They tell you, hey, you need to go from point A to B. You got to plan your fuel, all this stuff. You're dealing with multiple credit cards. And that's where it, it really got my mind thinking of, all right, you know, aviation isn't cheap. And every decision I make here is costing them a lot of money. For sure. It's costing someone money. It is. You know, and funny, when I went to my my interview at Virgin, those were some of the things they brought up. You know, all right, well, you see you're a training captain here and uh, you've flown internationally. You know, why should we pick you over the guy next to you? You know, and those type of things, you know, I just basically told them, hey, you know, I, I've done the international side. I've, you know, I've had to budget everything and I saw all the back roots of what makes a company run as opposed to those things I never knew just flying at the regional. So it was well, to kind of put those into perspective because, you know, they're out there to make money. And then, you know, uh, I spent, I, I literally was only at Latitude for see, six months. And one of my buddies, he's, you know, sitting there going, ah, you know, I'm flying a lot though. I'm, I only had four days off a month there. That's uh, intense. That was pretty tough. Yeah. And I was flying every day. I always knew I wanted to work at the majors. It was just, how do I, how do I get to a major now? You know, I just had my app out. And of course it all happens in two. As soon as I got a job there, boom, Virgin called and gave me a class date. That's so cool to see. Like, I am really encouraged by the fact that you, like we talked about earlier, how you could kind of, you saw what the industry was and you made that decision. And I think it's important that no matter where you are, like always kind of just like, you don't have to quit your job. You don't have to always move, but just like keep an eye open for things. Like you never know what opportunity can come up. 
Uh, there's been numerous times where my friends have had what they thought was going to be like a great job and it turned out to not be the best. So the whole time they kept in touch with their contacts, they stayed involved in the community and then eventually they found something else and better. So never get out of touch with your aviation community. Yeah. And there's always going to be times where you're going to be down and you know, you're going to say to yourself, man, I, I used to like flying and now I'm just, you know, I'm slaving away out here flying all these crappy routes on crappy planes and blah, 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 you know, and it's all towards end goal. And as long as you, as you keep that end goal in mind, you know, it's it, it makes it a lot easier. Oh, for sure. No, it makes it a, a lot easier. And it's definitely encouraging when you can see yourself moving up in equipment too, like coming from like a 172, and then you went straight to a Citation and you keep on building your aircraft and flying cool aircraft like the Pilatus. I've met airline guys that have told me that their dream is to fly Pilatus. And I'm like, well, that's what I get to do for my living right now. And they're like, that is so cool. I'm so jealous of you. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> well, one of my favorite airplanes to fly. I mean, yeah. it was a really cool airplane, reliable. We had the NG series with have the synthetic vision and the full glass cockpit. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're flying straight Stone Age Pilatuses and compared to yours. Back to what you're saying with that, the gear, you know, with those hydraulic gear on those things, we had a hydraulic leak. We had to pump that, manually pump the gear down. As soon as we went, took off, went to raise the gear, nothing happened. All the lights went out and I was just like, oh, here we go. So yeah, we, we manually extended the gear. and. So your first indication was right after takeoff, like you kind of knew something was up? Yeah, the nose gear never came up. The main okay. came up and showed that they were up, but the nose wheel didn't. And it, it was just from we did a flyby, and the tower said it was just kind of hanging out there. Yeah, didn't oh, have man. pressure to you know you you know when you pull the gear on that thing, it's loud. Oh yeah, yeah, you can feel it kind of thud up there too. And it was kind of making a whistle noise, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh man, this is this is not good." So you know, came back around and. That ended up being okay. And so talk me through the process of putting the gear down. You had a FO or SIC at that time. Like, did yep. you split stuff up? Because I know the Pilatus is a single pilot plane. Did you just do everything on your own? So what we did is we're, we were on the roll. This is coming out of um, Hawthorne in LA and it's busy airspace. So I basically told them I have the airplane, I have the radios, you know, QRH for uh, hydraulic leak. At that time on that airplane, it, it has the indicator lights, but it's not a very, it's not like an e-cam where it tells you exactly what to do. Like on the Airbus I'm in, you lose an engine, it says do this. And when you do that, it goes away and you have your checklist right on the screen. So at that time, you know, with any airplane, you know, pull the QRH, can't go wrong there. And he went through and we did a manual drop, which is, you know, basically you're, you're dropping the gear. All right you don't have green lights go ahead and manually crank it at that time which was a mm -hmm. kind of a little crank pump deal and yeah you got those three levers you got the fuel the ecs and then you got the hydraulic one yeah and that little that little red handle you pull out and yep. uh make sure you do the right one exactly not the fuel yeah and it cranked it down and got three green but you know still coming back around i'm just like wow i you you know it's down because the contactors are there but i'm still just going man all right i really don't want to belly land an airplane yeah please no <laughs> yeah so how long did it take you to pump it down i want to say it was 30 seconds to get it down it was a long time that is got to be a very disconcerting 30 seconds too and then like you said you think it's down you're like i hope we can land and at that point that airplane it doesn't pump them into the into the lock so we had to get slow enough and then rock the airplane so that was kind of nerve-wracking and then you know you're you're looking in the back and people are like what the hell's going on why are we going back to hawthorne and i'm like oh here didn't come up you know you don't tell them that we just got a small issue yeah we're gonna go have a maintenance guy check it out it's no problem <laughs> exactly yeah we're good defos sweating bullets like why is he sweating so much like uh uh, he's new. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and back at the airline, speaking of failures, I had a decompression in a CRJ. That was tense. Um, that was coming into Dayton. Dayton, Ohio? And, yeah. Nice. And I want to say, God, it was like 20 below too. It was freezing. Yeah, that's Dayton, Ohio for you. Exactly. So you're coming down and you're running your checklist same type of way. But when you go to drop the cabin, when you get to 10,000 feet and you're going on ram air, I mean, it was instant 
to outside temperature. I'll never forget that because that was Valentine's Day. And I was like, wow, you know, I was like, I'm about to blow everybody's eardrums. Happy Valentine's Day to you guys. Exactly. I remember on that same flight, we're coming down in there and the wind was blowing at like 30 completely across the side. And when we broke out, it's down to minimums. The captain was flying and I was looking out my right side window at the runway and I was like, oh, crap. I was like, this is a serious crosswind down to minimums. I was like, wow, you know, when it rains, it pours. And of course, we're sitting there going, man, that was gnarly. Yeah, that, let's not do that again. All right. Yeah, yeah, it, it's wild. And then, you know, when you're used to flying airplanes with stick and rudder and stuff like that, now you're on autopilot. And then when you break out, you're back to stick and rudder. You know, it's you got a lot going on. Yeah, and it's important to maintain those stick and rudder skills. Like even with the Pilatus is more automated than anything I've flown before, but I still fly every approach by hand just because I don't ever want to lose those skills because like you said, you're going to have situations where everything possible is going to go wrong and you, you can't worry about your skills at that point. You know, my, my number one thing going through this Airbus training that I was having the hardest trouble with was keeping my feet off the rudder. And that airplane, you don't, it's kind of where it's all fly by wire. So you're flying it down to literally 50 foot and then taking over. So you're, you're only using the rudder coming in the last, you know, five seconds, which is really weird for me. It, it's a total different airplane to fly, which is, it's fun for me now. Cause you know, I'm stoked. I'm like, all right, I got a tray table and I got a ton of room. <laughs> I can totally sit back and relax now and yeah. everything and auto thrust and things I never had before. So many cool things. So many cool things that you have in there now. And, you know, going through, so um, going back to the the Virgin interview and all that, I'll just start with there since where we left off. This was the first interview where you walk in and they're, they're not concerned about asking you flying questions. So you take a, you take an online test, which asks you a bunch of math questions and the personality test. Yeah. And when you get there, it was at the time they'd been bought by Alaska. So you go in there and there's four interview group panels and half are Alaska and half are Virgin. All the Virgin guys are chill and, uh, you know, in jeans and, uh, every Alaska guy's in a full blown suit. That's hilarious. There was 13 of us, 10 of us got the job. Oh, wow. It was really, it was a full blown, tell me a time when. So that's when, you know, all these questions about, you know, having an interesting story, I think helped, you know, and helps set you apart a little bit. Exactly. Cause I had basically a lot of regional guys that were just like, yeah, I, I fly instructed. I went to the regionals and now I'm here. You know what I mean? So it's tell me a time there. One was tell me a time when you scared the crap out of yourselves, you know? And I told them a time when I was out hundred miles off the shore and I got car ice at 500 feet above the oh water. Oh my gosh. So, you know, and, those kind of stories, you can sit there and laugh about them with them. And they're like, man, that's that's pretty wild. That's crazy. The training at that point was just like any other airline training, you know, just memorizing your limitations, memory items. And I, I will say that the Virgin Pilot Group is a really great group of people. And even in the training center and, you know, at the headquarters, it feels more like Google or Facebook. Richard Branson set out a really made a really great company when he he set that up. Well, good. Well, I know everyone at Alaska seems to like that job too, but it sounds like from the interview process, they're two completely different cultures though. So it'd be interesting how they can merge those and take the best of both companies and create one great company. Exactly. You know, I mean, Alaska is a very highly renowned company. They've you know, they've won a lot of awards, Virgin as well. They've won, you know, a bunch of awards as well. And, you know, when you get into a Virgin airplane, it's, you can tell it's just different. You know, we have a music video for a, for the in-flight safety demo. That's awesome. I've never flown on Virgin before. I'm an East Coast kid, so I grew up in Charlotte my whole life. And if you've ever been to the Charlotte Douglas Airport, you'll know when I was growing up, it was 99% US Airways and how it's 99% American. So there's really only one airline you take. Exactly. You know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, when I got back to saying, you know, 
I really do want to be a, a major airline pilot. And those are the kind of the things that I, I look for. It's like, you know, I want to, I want a place where I can retire, have a lot of days off, enjoy the people I fly with, fly nice airplanes. And for, uh, sure. for me, this is kind of the, hope, hopefully I'll stay here forever. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a great place to stay forever. I know a lot of people set out to go to Alaska. I've had a couple of people I've flown with that only want to fly for Alaska. So I think you're at the right place. Yeah. You know, I, I have no complaints at this point. You went into good detail about all of that. I just don't know if there's anything else you wanted to touch on. I about checked it off. And you know, it's one of those things when you, when you go through your type ride and all that stuff, it is intimidating. But like for me, I had, a, I had the train, the head of the, the head of the training did my check ride and the manager of training did my oral. And they were both the nicest people ever. And they're just like, we know, you know, your stuff. Let's just talk about some stuff. And they're like, okay, cool. And then it makes it a lot easier, sets the tone where my last airline, you know, I had literally the worst guy and he was really terrible to fly with the, my, at the major. They're like, we hired eight of you. We need eight of you. You know, we, we're not here to, you know, throw you under the bus. If you need something, call us. I have every one of their numbers and they said, just call us, you know, and we did. It worked out great. And the different thing about Virgin too is we have guys that are in the, in the instructor phases. So in the training department that have only been there a year and they're FOs, but they're, they want to keep it to where there's not a big discrepancy from your simulator training to what's on the line. Okay. Well on the line, we do it this way and they integrate. So there's not that big deal with when you get online, they're like, well, where the hell did you learn this? And so that was cool in there. It was weird. They're very strict at their call outs there. So I mean, you know, set missed approach altitude. No, it's not that. It's set go around altitude. Okay. And then, you know, I'd say, uh, all right, flight attendants, seats for seats for landing. They're not flight attendants. They're in-flight teammates. And it's like, okay, it's little things down, but now it's, you know, it all comes and it, it makes sense. Well, it's also just so funny how airlines can do stuff completely differently. Flying home last night on a United Airbus and uh, they run their cockpit completely differently. Ours is, you know, we basically let the automation do it and then they're turning off pumps and everything based on I'm just like, I was kind of sitting there going, well, what are they doing right here? I understand, but why? You're like, why are you touching that? Did you break something? Like that does it, that does itself. You know that, right? <laughs> Their Airbuses are so old that if they let the automation do it, sometimes they get, you know, nose wheel steering faults and different things they found out throughout the, the time of those airplanes, you know? Well, that's just another thing is that you can't always trust automation too. You got to be careful. Exactly. You know, on the check ride, we're still doing like one of the first things you take off, normal takeoff, and you're intercepting a radial, just like we were talking about in the instrument check ride. So you're still doing that stuff. So it's all good to have a you know, have, have a base of like, all right, yeah, I can intercept a radial. Well, then you're sitting there. It's like, well, what's the, what's the reciprocal of, you know, 215, you know, and you have to do the in your head. You're like, huh? What's a, what does reciprocal mean? I don't remember. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there's still those little things. I'm like, wow, but it, it's all good fun. Well, cool, man. I'm going to go ahead and jump into the rapid fire section here. And, uh, it's nothing too hard. Just, uh, I'm going to ask you some questions. And the first thing that pops in your mind will be your answer. Okay. So number one will be, what's your favorite airplane you've ever flown? Pilatus. What's your just favorite airplane in general? Maybe one you haven't flown yet. You know, I'd love 7576. Okay. Nice. The pencils. Yeah, right. What's your favorite airport you've ever flown to? To be honest, San Diego. I love San that. Diego. That localizer in, right over the the apart or the parking complex. Oh yeah, and then the other one is uh, the LaGuardia um, Expressway Visual, all hand. Okay. Flown. Yeah, that's a cool one too. I haven't done LaGuardia, but I did the JFK. It was the Canarsie VOR where I had to shoot the VOR over the city. Do you legit follow lead-in lights over the buildings on the cities? Yeah, that's a cool one. Yeah, that was a lot. That was the first time I've ever been to JFK and I had like a thousand hours. It was, I was sitting at SIC, I was with my chief pilot. So he was kind of doing it while I was doing the radios. And I was like, thank you for being here because this is really cool. All right. Do you prefer long legs or short legs? I used to prefer short legs. Now I prefer long legs. It's all about the max credit you can get in a day. Would you rather fly over cities, mountains, country, or beach? Over the beach for sure. Over the beach. West coast or east coast flying? 
Oh, West Coast. Yeah. If you weren't a pilot, what would you want to be? I'd like to get in some type of financial side. And I'd actually still like to do that on the side, either real estate or, uh, you know, some kind of stocks, bonds, trading, something like that. Well, you know, pilots are notoriously bad for their money, so you can help any pilot out. Then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you like Piper or Cessna better? I've only really flown Cessna, so I'd have to go with Cessna, but I would love to fly like a Mirage or a Malibu or something like that. All right, here's the last one. What is one thing you have to have on you at all times while flying? It's going to sound bad, but the GoPro. The GoPro? Nice. You never know when something cool is going to happen. And then when you go on trips and stuff, I mean, that thing, I take it everywhere. That's awesome. If someone came up to you today, a complete stranger, and said, I want to be a pilot, what would you say to them and what kind of advice would you give them? If someone wanted to be a pilot, I would recommend them going into an intro flight. And then if any of your friends do it, do it that way and fly with your buddies. Um, I know it can be intimidating to just show up. And I would probably reference them to this in the Facebook groups and, you know, just listen to these stories because there's you don't have to go to a flight school. You know what I mean? And I would do it the cheapest way you can, because at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper. And, you know, flight time, flight time at the end of the day. doesn't matter how much you paid for it. I was lucky I have no debt with college and then I have no debt flying as well. Too. That's so awesome. I, if you go to the regionals, you're making 17 grand a year and you got 200 grand in debt. I mean, you can do the math. It's not going to work out. Uh, no. Yeah. Luckily, regionals are not paying 17 grand anymore. So they have that going for them. You can make like 70 grand a year, I think. Yeah, that. you can. And in a previous podcast, I was talking with Kurt and we were talking about how everything's a cycle too. So you never like the regionals are paying that now, but there's going to be a time when they're going to go back to not being able to pay that. So you got to get in as soon as you can to make your money while you can. Exactly. Yeah. Kurt, Kurt's done a lot of good stuff. Good dude. The last question for you is if you had the opportunity to go back in time and start your training over, would you do anything differently or are you happy with how everything's gone? I think I would have put more effort into getting my rating sooner. Okay. For sure. Yeah. You know, my, my sim partner, he was 27 years old and I'm sitting there going, man, I'm old. I'm third. I just turned 30, you know, which is still young for a major, but it's like, man, you know, a lot of these guys are, they're getting to majors at God, there's people that get in there at 25 years old, you know, it's for sure. I mean, as soon as you know, you want to fly, like we talked about it earlier, just go do it, like knock it out. Cause the faster you get your stuff done, the quicker you can go make money and the quicker you can become a professional pilot and fly for the majors or fly for net jets or whatever you want to do. I had kind of the similar situation as you when I got hired at this company, there's a kid who was PIC flying caravans and he was like 22 years old. And I was like, dude, <laughs> you are four years younger than me right now. Like, how is this happening? He just got hired at Republic. He is 23, 23 or 24 at Republic now in his training and he still can't even rent a car. Oh yeah, he'll be, you know, he'll be a captain by God, what, probably three years from now. It's pretty wild to think. I mean, it's it's cool. It's a good, it's the perfect time to be a pilot right now. It is, which is awesome. So if anyone is listening to this right now, go ahead and try it. Like you said, the best thing you can do is take an intro flight because the last thing you want to do is put in a bunch of money and find out this is something you don't want to do. And then also I recommend you getting your medical because you never know what kind of issues that you can have that you don't even know that they could find and that could prohibit you from pursuing this dream. So do those two things and then go full board. I'd say that's a good way. Yep. Solid. Well, cool, man. That is pretty much all I have for you on this. Um, I appreciate you coming onto the podcast. I've loved following your page on one funny thing. When I first found your page, I was in Carlsbad, New Mexico for my aerial survey. So I always thought you were from Carlsbad, New Mexico and not Carlsbad, California. I didn't put this two together until the first time we started talking or until I started looking at watching some more of your stories and stuff like that. So it's pretty funny. Yeah, I, a lot of people do think that. And it's, you know, I, I've been here. It's hard because I was, you know, I was like, ah, oh, well, I'll change my name to Airbus something, but keep it the same. And 
anybody listening to this, you know, if, if you want advice or anything or, I mean, whatever you need, feel free to hit, obviously, you or me up on, on Instagram and just drop us a note. The one thing I don't like about Instagram is how when people that you don't follow, they message you, but you don't get the notification. You know, you have to actually go into your direct messages and see that someone has messaged you. So we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We don't ignore you on purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, like I said before, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I wish you the best with your career. And if uh, you ever want to come back on, you ever have any cool stories you want to tell, just let me know. I'd love to have you back on. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll link up in Carlsbad or Ohio one of these days. I'll be down for that, man. That'd be awesome. Who knows? Maybe you can help me get a job. Hey, this is how it works. Well, hey, I appreciate it. And um, yeah, man, hope you have a great day. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right, guys. And with that, Episode 9 is done. I hope you guys really enjoyed this. Justin and I had a great conversation. We have quite a bit in common. We both love the PC-12. We've both done the 135 world. We're both just finding different ways to go about this career. Do not be discouraged if you don't want to be a flight instructor. There are plenty of other options for you to choose on your path. Even though flight instructing is a great one, you can find many other ways to get your 1,500 hours and more. If you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know. We love hearing your feedback. It helps us create the best content we can possibly create. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to our Instagram page at pilot to pilot where you can leave us a DM, a comment. You can share our page, do whatever you can do necessary to let us know. You can even email us at pilot to pilot HQ at gmail.com. We love responding to you guys and interacting with you guys. We're always looking for new people to interview. So if you want to be on the show, send us an email and you never know, you might be the next person on the pilot to pilot podcast and make sure you stay tuned. I'm going to release these bloopers next. Hello, aviators, AV Nation, and welcome to Pilot to Pilot. What? This is your host's wife, <laughs> Christina. What, being hijacked? Yeah, you are. Just for the intro, though, because I gotta go. What do you guys say about the, the aviation nation patients, patients? I think that the Pilot to Pilot listeners should be called AV Nation. Like aviation, but AV Nation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, let me try. <laughs> Oh boy. That's the chair. Has stuck with this tough process of becoming a pilot, and he is really getting the fruits of his labor. And uh, Justin <laughs> just looked at me to make sure that was a real phrase. Do you want me to go? No. Okay. No. Hi, AV Nation. What is that? We are going to get that trending. <laughs> Hashtag AV Nation. That's no. what we're going to call the people who listen to... No one listens to this. I listen to it.